Good morning. All right, Dan, show us the photo you got there. Actually, this isn't a very good shot of those cabinets in the background, but I built those for. Now, this is my grandson, Caleb, precious little kid. Ah, I just love him. I just feel so sorry for him because he misses his granddad so much. <laughs> but anyway, I'm showing you this because um, I, I emailed or texted my daughter, Kate, who is the um, mother of Caleb, and just this week and said, you know, as you enjoy Christmas this year, uh, be sure and think about the fact that you just had your firstborn son and you probably can relate somewhat to what Mary was experiencing. She said, Dad, Dad, I've already been thinking that. Another time, uh, we were over at their house, and we were going to go to church with them that Sunday morning. And so we were all getting ready, and uh, I asked Kate, should I bring my Bible to church? Because we'd never been to their church before. So should I bring my Bible to church? She says, well, you know, if you want to bring it, bring it. Well, you know, I mean, are they going to ask us to open the Bible and actually read it? She said, Dad, we don't go to a stupid church. <laughs> ah, I thought, that's great. We raised her right. Okay, you can take Caleb off, even though I know you love looking at him. But kids are just magnificent. Um, and listening to our, these children that we heard today sing... Just multiple times I just found myself blubbering there in my chair, just a pool of mess and worship. Uh, it reminded me of the beautiful truth in Psalm 8. Just listen, just listen to Psalm 8, just the first couple of verses. David said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. If you have the NIV, it says you have perfected praise. And Jesus quotes this verse, these verses, when the uh, religious leaders told him to tell the kids to be quiet because the kids were praising Christ there at the triumphal entry. And they said, tell these kids to be quiet. And Jesus said, have you never read what uh, Psalm 8 basically says, that God has ordained children to praise God. Implication, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. Just beautiful. Well, speaking of kids, our tradition doesn't do really the Advent candle. Uh, maybe you do in your home, but generally, you know, this, our circles don't do the Advent candle. And so, but I wonder, does anybody here know what the four candles represent? Wow, we really don't do the Advent candle, don't we? <laughs> okay, there, I see that hand. Suzanne, what, what do they represent? Okay, hope. Well, you don't have to give me a full exegesis on all, all four candles. Just what do the four represent? Hope, what's, what are the other three? That's good. You got three of them, and the rest of us are still scratching our heads. I had to look it up because I didn't know either. Yes, you got it. Okay, thank you, Suzanne. 
So the one among us who can light uh, with knowledge the Advent candle this year, hope, peace, joy, and love. Hope, peace, joy, and love are, are what the four counts. Well, all this is to lead up to a story, a true story, of a mom. She asked her children, who can tell me what the four candles in the Advent wreath represent? And one seven-year-old jumped in and said, I know. There's love, joy, peace, and, 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 then, and then another, the sister jumped in and said, peace and quiet. And I thought, that is so true. This week, I was in a business, and uh, I walked in, and they were playing Christmas music. And not just the Christmas music, you know, like Rudolph, but actually, you know, they were singing the J word there in this, uh, this business, which wasn't a, you know, a, a religious place at all. So I, I went over to the manager, and I said, I just want you to know I love the music you're playing. And he, he kind of leaned over, and he said, yeah, but I'm sick of it. And I said, what do you mean? He says, we play it 24-7. He says, I hear it in my sleep. I thought, well, it could be worse things you could hear in your sleep or hear 24-7. But I saw an article in the paper that said this is a very common struggle with retailers. In fact, at the Galleria in Dallas, the retail employees are being driven crazy by Christmas carols. One Employees said, quote, the music makes us nuts. We listen to the CD all day on 12 and 15 hour shifts. Even if we leave the store, other stores are playing the same songs. In Europe, I read that labor unions in the Czech Republic and in Austria say that the holiday tunes are causing emotional trauma. <laughs> they're, demanding, they're demanding extra pay or to get two days off as compensation, or stop playing the music. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you don't connect to it, I can see where it would be annoying. Any music is like that, isn't it? But boy, if you connect to it, you become a pool of blubbering mess in your chair. It was so great to hear our kids sing this morning. And it was wonderful also to hear them, somewhat in part, explain what they were singing, which was wonderful. And it's a great education for them and for us, but not everybody understands what these carols represent. In fact, I heard about, not here at our church, but another, another church, you know, down the road, there was a five-year-old named Julie who was singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Her daughter heard her singing, but instead of singing, with angelic host proclaim, she sang, with jelly toast proclaim. She heard it wrong, but we're just going to sing it because those are the words. Another child saw a sign in the yard and as they were driving down the road and asked his mom, what does that sign spell? And the mother said, it spells Noel. And the kid said, well, if there's Noel, what does it spell? True story. Not just bad jokes, but true, true story. There was another kid named Grant said he learned in church about goats being there when Jesus was born. And when asked how in the world did he know about goats, do you know, Harry? Goats tell, goats tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. True stories. Well, we might as well be speaking goat or French or Latin if we don't know that Noel means day of birth, if we don't know that in excelsis Deo means what? Glory to God in the highest. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, let's turn together to a couple of places, familiar, and yet I hope that they will be new to you. First of all, Isaiah chapter 9. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. Christmas is said to be one of the most wonderful times of the year, when in fact it is often a time of great stress. And I don't just mean shopping malls that play the same carols over and over. I'm talking about painful memories. Parents and children um, struggle sometimes with the memories of Christmas. Parents and loved ones perhaps who have died or who are no longer around. Stress of being around family that's not easy to be around. And then there's the pressure, of course, of spending money and the obligation of gifts, of decorating, of sending cards, of attending parties. All these things that are fun can also tip the balance to becoming very stressful. And the most wonderful time of the year can be the most stressful time of the year. The first Christmas was honestly very much the same. And it took something very special to bring the peace of mind that they needed. The prophet Isaiah here in chapter 9 is writing to God's people during a time when they were oppressed by a foreign power. And that's not really something we relate to. Uh, we, are the, we are the dominant power in the world today. If anybody's going to do oppressing, we're going to be doing it. It's not done to us. So we can't really relate to the threat of a foreign power. Maybe 9-11 gives us some sense of a feeling of vulnerability and fear. But imagine 9-11 mentality 24-7 in Israel. During Isaiah's time, the Assyrian superpower was overshadowing and threatening. It was the time of Hezekiah, even though he was a godly king. Isaiah was alive at that time, and the nation feared this pressure. And so Isaiah prophesies here in chapter 9, starting, well, starting in verse 1, but we're going to start in verse 6, the familiar verse that points to the solution, this wonderful world ruler. Verse 6 says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So there is this prophecy of a child born and we're told the government is going to rest on his shoulders. That doesn't mean it's going to oppress him. It doesn't mean that kind of resting on his shoulders, but the responsibility of government. This child is going to be the world ruler, and this child is given names. The names in the Old Testament are like facets of a diamond, that one name is not sufficient, just like one facet is not sufficient to see the beauty of the gem. This child is going to be called, is going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. So this child is God. Amazing. Right there in the Old Testament. He is going to be called the eternal father. 
He is going to be called the Prince of Peace. And we're told in verse 7 that this peace exists as the fulfillment of the promise to David. That God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would rule the world from his Jerusalem throne. And Isaiah says that this child that's going to be born to us is going to be that that Messiah, that deliverer. And of course, we know this is referring to Jesus. If you look in your margin there at verse 6 and verse 7, there are scads of references, not the least of which we've got in Luke 2, pointing to Jesus very clearly. But this is a, um, a powerful ruler that we're looking forward to in the future. Isaiah prophesied about a future time, seven centuries in the future, when, when this Messiah is going to come. And seven centuries in the future from Isaiah's time wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Romans. So let's look at, look at Luke, Luke chapter 1 now, at the primary passage that we'll be looking at this morning, Luke chapter 1. When our daughters were young and precious, they incessantly asked me, every Christmas they would do it, how long until Christmas? How long until Christmas? This started like Halloween. You know, how many more days until Christmas? And so, you know, we'd do the math, and they were just, and I just finally asked them, look, what's, you just have to wait. I mean, what's the big deal? You just wait. Christmas will come. It does every year. Last year it came. This year it'll come. It's just waiting. And I didn't really relate to what they were saying until Kathy, I think it was probably one of the, about that same time, asked me. She said, do you want your Christmas gift before we go out of town or after we get back? I said, before? <laughs> I don't want to wait. Same idea. We hate to wait, especially when we know that there's something coming, that there's something that's a for sure thing that's going to be great. For kids, it's Christmas. For Israel, it was Jesus. It was the coming Messiah. In Luke chapter 1, um, of course, Luke has long chapters. Look at this, 80 verses in chapter 1. Luke uh, is uh, free-flowing with his pen here. But um, think out loud. Before we read the text, think out loud with me for a moment. How did God sovereignly prepare in history for the coming of Jesus? Just tell me out loud. What would you say? The Roman roads. Roman peace. Two for two. Look at this couple. The Greek language. Absolutely. Okay, so let's just stop and take stock of all those things. That God in his sovereignty raised up Alexander the Great to Hellenize the world. He conquered the world, and when he did that, he made everyone speak one language. The lingua franca of that day was Greek. Everybody learned to speak Greek. Alexander made it happen. It happened across all the world. So that when Jesus Christ came into the world, now the New Testament would not only be given to the world, but it would be written in the language of the world, in Greek. And not in you know, high Greek, but in common Greek, koine Greek, as it's called. It was a language that uh, Eugene Peterson, you might say, could have written. It was, a, it was very easy for everyone to understand. So you had a common language. Also, when the Romans came along to take care of the military in the 
all over the Roman Empire, they built roads. All roads lead to Rome. We've heard that. And all roads also lead from Rome. They go back and forth. And in a very short time, um, in fact, Roman roads, I wish the Romans would build our roads today, especially those around my neighborhood. There's this one area that's just potholes every time they fix it. And a couple months later, the same potholes there again. So I guess there's like this, you know, sinkhole that just sucks all the asphalt down. Anyway, the Romans did not build our roads. They, but boy, the roads that they built last. I have walked on some of these Roman roads and pretty much every land of the Bible, they're there. And they are still, uh, still there. Uh, Rome made these roads so that they could move troops and supplies all across the empire in a matter of days. So it was a matter of national security for them. Think about what Eisenhower did for America uh, at the threat of the uh, Cold War. That he made the international highway system, and now we've got all these international highways. It's the same idea with the Roman Empire, except their highways lasted forever. And in view of that, the fact that Rome controlled the world, now there, there is this peace that's called the, the Peace of Rome, or the Pax Romana. In other words, no one's going to cause a problem. We're going to see to it if they cause a problem. And uh, so the peace of Rome was this, this context of which you could travel because you knew you were safe. There were roads to travel on, and there was a language that everybody spoke. God had set all this up centuries so that when Jesus Christ came, the New Testament is written, the Apostle Paul could hit the ground running. Rome literally paved the way for the gospel, and God used it to make it happen. So that's some things that God did. Can you think of something that's in the Bible that God did to prepare the way for Jesus? What else? A star, okay, to give point, pointed to the, for the wise men to come and look. And this amazing couple once again said it. You're exactly right. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And here we are in Luke 1. We looked at this last week, uh, at least this chapter, part of it. But if we were to look at the early part, earlier part of this chapter, we see the wonderful message Gabriel comes to the father of, of John the Baptist named Zechariah, or your translation may say Zacharias, same guy. Zechariah's name in Hebrew, it's sort of a contraction. Zakar means to remember, and Yah is short for Yahweh, and it means the Lord remembers. And then his wife's name, Elizabeth, Eli means my God, and Zabeth, that part of it means uh, my, uh, the promise, basically. And so you put their names together, and it basically means the Lord remembers his promise. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the Lord remembers his promise. What promise? Well, now finally, let's read chapter 1 all the way down at verse 67. Luke 1, 67. These are the words of Zacharias as soon as his mouth is opened. Remember, he didn't believe. And so Gabriel basically said, all right, here's a sign. You want proof that it's going to happen? Easy. You're not going to hear anything. You're not going to say anything for nine months. It's probably the best nine months of Elizabeth's marriage. But finally, his mouth is opened. And in verse 67, these are the words he says. His father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Let's pause right there for a second. Zacharias was a priest, and so obviously he knew the Old Testament, but we also know the Old Testament. And so let's jump back and think of the big 30,000-foot view for a second. If we were to look at God's promises to Israel, what are the three promises, big covenants that God made in the Old Testament for Israel? First of all, to Abraham. To Abraham, think of people or big, big ideas. David, Abraham. Well, Moses, that's good, but that was not a permanent covenant. That was the Mosaic covenant was temporary, but that's good. We'll give you half a point for that. Davidic covenant, Abraham, David, and there's one more. You're all doing a great job. But I'm looking for the new covenant. Three unconditional covenants made to Israel. Noah's covenant was made to the world, not just Israel. In fact, there was no Israel at the time of Noah. The Mosaic covenant was made to Israel, but it was a temporary covenant. It's the old covenant. There is a new covenant that replaces the old. So you have three promises in the Old Testament that last eternally. To Abraham, the promise for land, descendants, and blessing. To David, the promise that one from his house, meaning his, one of his descendants, would sit on his throne over an eternal kingdom. And you had the new covenant of forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So Abraham, David, and then new covenant or the forgiveness of sins. And every one of those is represented here in Zechariah's great statement. We just read one of them, verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Let's keep going. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He might as well have said his name and Elizabeth's name right there. To remember his covenant. That's what their names mean. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, and then verse 77, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. All three covenants Zacharias mentions here in his, uh, finally, his mouth is opened, and he, boy, does he speak, and he shares about this. God didn't merely use prophecy. He didn't merely use history and government, but he also did it in the present time of Jesus. He also used the present ruler, Caesar. Look at chapter 2, right in verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the first uh, Roman emperor. Uh, and there was a whole bunch that came after that, and they all took the name Caesar as well. But um, his rule started in 27 BC, and it began what we've called the Peace of Rome, or the Pax Romana. In fact, you could go to Rome today. They've dug up what they've found as the Peace Altar, or it's also called the Altar of Augustan Peace. It's beautiful. 
I mean, it's probably about as big as, it's about as big as this room, the altar itself. And it's just, all these carvings are on it. It really is a stunning piece. But it basically celebrates the peace that Augustus brought to the world by his coming and by his ruling. And in the third century, so this is, what is just a couple hundred years after Jesus, there was a theologian named Origen. You may have heard of him. Origen wrote these words about the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. And even back then, they were recognizing God's sovereignty over history. Listen to what Origen said. He said, There is abundance of peace, which took its commencement at the birth, God preparing the nations for his teaching. Moreover, it is certain that Jesus was born in the reign of Augustus, who, so to speak, fused together into one monarchy the many populations of the earth. Now, the existence of many kingdoms would have been a hindrance to the spread of the doctrine of Jesus throughout the world. So Origen saw what we have just talked about, the fact that God sovereignly brought together the Roman Empire. And in Turkey, you can go to a place today in Turkey called Prien. I'd never heard of Prien before I went there, and it was... um, Beautiful. I mean, ruins are just, if you like archaeology, you're walking through just a a wonderful archaeological park. But excavators found a number of things at Prien. They found a Jewish synagogue, a Byzantine church, Roman theater, a temple to Athena. But one of the things they found there is an inscription written about Caesar Augustus, this one we just read about here in Luke chapter 2. And listen to the words. By the way, when Caesar Augustus was born, it was said that there was a star that appeared in the sky at his birth. Now, whether or not that happened, we don't know. But that there is this legend is a very interesting connection, especially in light of what was found at Prien. Listen to this inscription about Caesar Augustus. It says, quote, Since the providence, capital P, since the providence which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his epiphany, excelled even our anticipations. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news that came by reason of him. This inscription and the altar of peace, which you can see today in Rome, were written literally only a few years before the birth of Christ, in which Jesus was born during the reign of this uh, Caesar who was proclaimed to bring world peace. And, And the irony is just amazing. When you've got this world ruler, that peace comes because if you don't obey, he will stomp you. That's how peace is. Maybe some of us were raised in families like that. Oh, there was peace in the house. But it was peace because you knew you don't get out of line. It was a peace from oppression, from fear. It wasn't a peace that came from just ease at being in the presence of a godly leader. Homes have been like that. We've been in jobs like that, where the context of the work environment is just like, you don't say the wrong thing or you're done. 
That's not the way Jesus ruled. Only a few years after this inscription, the true Prince of Peace was born. So it's no coincidence that as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, began, the most pivotal event in all history would occur. Caesar commands a census. Why would Rome take a census? Because we want to know how many people to tax. It wasn't a mere interest in what's our population. It was, who do we have we can tax? This was the purpose of it. So, verse 4, we read that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, on the surface, we look at this and we'd say, well, you know, it's just a coincidence. I mean, there was a census, they had to go, so Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But because we know that there was a prophecy that said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and they lived way up north in Nazareth, how in the world is God's sovereign plan going to get them down south to be born in this you know, little, little town? God sovereignly moved the ruler of the world to take a census, knowing that that would redirect Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. From a human perspective, it looked like politics set the agenda. End of story. But it wasn't. God was sovereignly working through history, through governments, through politicians to bring about his perfect plan. A plan that at the time, nobody understood. But in hindsight, we look back and we go, wow, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. 700 years before the first Christmas, the prophet Micah pinpointed the place of the Messiah's birth, that it would be in Bethlehem of Judah, or Judea. God used a census. God used a census to fulfill prophecy. A coincidence? No. Providence. Providence. Who came from Bethlehem? Yes, that's the easy answer. Who else came from Bethlehem? Boaz and Ruth. You're exactly right. You, you said Boaz, which is right, and he, he was married to Ruth, which is also right. Think about Ruth's story for a second in Bethlehem. This is, this is how David gets his connection. This is how Jesus gets his connection to Bethlehem. It goes all the way back to Boaz and Ruth. And remember, we looked at Ruth some time ago, and one of the things we emphasized as we looked there at Ruth chapter 2 was that it began with Ruth saying, let me go glean in somebody's field, you know, and, and wherever I happen to go. And the text says that she chanced upon Boaz's field. It just so happened that it worked out. And it just so happened that from Ruth, just so happened to going that day, the Messiah, I mean, all these details unfold. And at the time, it just seemed like nothing. Now think about our lives. This is not just the Christmas story. This is our story. This is your story. And it's my story. You know one of the major things God used to set a major trajectory in my life? 
a cassette tape. A cassette tape. I was in college. I went to a class, a choir class, and I, I saw a guy sitting on the front row holding this cassette tape of Michael W. Smith. And I thought, well, this guy might be a Christian. So I went over to him and said, hey, are you a Christian? He said, yeah. And the guy ends up being like one of my best friends now for the rest of my life. We became roommates. He introduced me to a friend of his who went to a certain church in that time I'd never heard of. I started going to that church. That's the church that I met Kathy at. We got married at that church. That church introduced me to the seminary I went to. And on and on it goes. All through a cassette tape. God sovereignly works through big details and small details. Also, back in second grade, some of you may know this story. Back in second grade, I met a little boy, because that's what we were back in second grade, named Scott. And he and I became good friends. We just started you know, riding bikes and goofing off together. And then we decided one day, hey, let's, my, my dad had a Super 8 movie camera. Let's, let's goof off with this blank film. And so we made this dumb little video. Uh, not called a video back then. It was called a film. Movie. Movie. Thank you. <laughs> we don't even use videos today. They're just digital things we look at. But anyway, this guy, we ended up making a whole bunch of movies together just for fun. This guy takes it seriously, goes on and becomes a cameraman. And it's like, you know, that's what he still does. He's a director of photography. He's done feature films. I mean, everything. But long story short, this is the guy that films all my videos with me. I met the guy back in second grade. And God set this guy on a trajectory of being excellent at film and me on a trajectory of getting schooled in Israel and geography and the Bible and all that, and then brings us back together in our late 40s. For the last seven years now, we've been filming all the places of the Bible lands. God works that way, all the way back from second grade. You think of anything that happened significant in your second grade? I can. And you probably can too if you think about it. Again, this isn't just the Christmas story. It's your story. Think back through the years of your life. I've told you a little bit of mine. Think back in yours. Think back through the years of your life. Think about how would-be coincidences, like the cassette tape, would-be coincidences and seemingly insignificant moments have turned the corner for you and brought you where you are today. Just happenstance conversations, uh, an unexpected pregnancy, or the death of someone close to you, or maybe a job loss, maybe even a betrayal by a close friend. Things at the time that you did not see the hand of God in. In fact, you, it felt like God was very much absent from your circumstance. And yet, from the human perspective, we can misinterpret God's providence as inconvenience. Do you think it was convenient for Joseph and Mary to go all the way down to Bethlehem to be counted, to be taxed? No. Is it convenient for you every April when you write that check? No. But God uses our sovereign uh, occurrences. He is guiding our lives. And if you believe that, then that's called walking by faith. Well, let's leave Luke and turn to John, if you would. Next book over. 
John chapter 14. John 14. John 14 is the upper room, part of what we call the upper room discourse or the conversation Jesus has with his disciples the night before he dies. The Bible doesn't record the details around Jesus' birth so that we'll have something to talk about at Christmas. One of the big reasons that we read all this stuff about Jesus, his birth, is because his birth had such a significant fulfillment of all these prophecies in the Old Testament, that the coming of Christ was the answering of a promise. It wasn't just Christmas in the sense that we think of it. It was fulfillment of God's promise. All throughout the life of Christ, we see that. In fact, you may remember, we won't turn here in John, but if we were to turn a few more chapters over, we would see what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate just before Pilate hung him on a cross. Pilate asked Jesus, don't you realize I have authority to crucify you? Remember what Jesus said? He said in John 19, 11, Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. In other words, Jesus saw God's hand is moving in you, politician. God's hand is moving to bring about his perfect will. So Jesus came the first time during the peace of Rome, and he, then he tells his disciples about a greater peace. John 14, look down, uh, verse 27. John 14, 27. It's a theme of peace that he began in the first couple of verses, but in verse 27, he makes it plain. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. See, that's the great contrast between the peace that the world gives and the peace that Christ gives. The peace of Rome came about because you were fearful. You were troubled. If you stepped out of line, they'd hang you on a cross. Jesus says, the peace I give you is not like the world gives. The peace I give you is where your heart will not be troubled. You will not be fearful. Because you know that anything that the Heavenly Father has against you, I take it on myself when I die on the cross. There is no reason that you need to be afraid. Look at chapter 16 now, verse 33. Jesus is still talking in the upper room discourse. It's a long conversation. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, says, I leave my peace with you. And it's a peace that we desperately need. Isn't it? Uh, I can count on one hand the, uh, the times in my life where I've felt an overwhelming sense of God's presence. Typically, it happens with music, which is interesting. Music tends to just give us this sense of the presence of God. Well, that was the case several years ago, 
It was Christmas time. I was in the car by myself. It was raining, cats and dogs. Traffic was slow. I was headed up to the mall to get last minute Christmas gifts because that's when husbands shop at the last minute. And retailers take advantage of that, by the way. I noticed as I was in there looking around, it was just me and a bunch of other men looking like this. Just willing to, you know, sure, what, what should I buy? And so I was on my way to the mall. And it had been a hard year for me, a hard year vocationally, a hard year with family. And, and Christmas time, as I shared at the beginning of my uh, talk here, isn't always an easy time. Um, My upbringing was a tough upbringing, and I won't give you the details of it to say, except it was a tough upbringing. Christmas was not always pleasant memories for me. So whenever it rolls around every year, I think about those things. And so I'm in the car all by myself, thinking about all that's going on in my mind, and it's raining, and traffic's got us stuck at this red light, and I'm not even at the mall yet. And so because it's raining so hard, the traffic next to me can't see me, and I can't see them. And I'm, I'm literally just stuck, stopped there in the rain by myself, not moving, no sound except the rain. And I thought, well, maybe I'll listen to some music. I had bought a Celine Dion Christmas album years ago, and so I turned it on. And she began to sing, O Holy Night, which is my favorite Christmas song of all time. And she does such a great job with it. And as I began to really think about what she was singing and what the words were saying, it was this overwhelming sense of God's presence. And you know the words to this, Carol, you know, long lay the world in sin and error, pining, meaning it's just swimming in sin and error. And then, of course, Jesus shows up. And I think that because I had nowhere to go in the car but up, you might think, the truth of those lyrics hit me. They worked from my ears to my heart, and I sensed this this overwhelming presence of God. That sounds weird. If you've never experienced that, and I'm not saying you have to experience it to be saved or anything like that, I think moments of our lives we have this experience. Uh, At least I have, but not a lot. But this was overwhelming. It was an overwhelming sense of God's presence. It was unplanned. It was unexpected. It was sudden. It was surprising. And it's not something you can manufacture or plan for. You know, like I always get a kick when we at our churches say, you know, we're planning a revival next weekend. (laughs) How do you do that? A revival is when the Holy Spirit shows up and you're not expecting it. But anyway. Maybe it's a request. Lord, we request a revival next weekend. But like the angels that appeared above the shepherds, just boom, out of nowhere, the angels appear and announce it's his doing. And there's something special. Here's my greatest takeaway, I guess, from that moment. As soon as I felt the overwhelming presence of God, all my problems vanished. Because when you compare the glory of God to what you're dealing with, it's just what you're dealing with just goes away. That's sort of how I imagine it when we have all these questions in life. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. 
And I'm going to say, Lord, what about that? And remember back in 1987 when this happened? I'm going to ask God about that. Or what about the problem of evil? How can a good God allow, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's like we've got this list, and when we get to heaven, God's got to answer for it. And the truth is, when we get to heaven, we're going to see the glory of Christ, and I think we're just going to go, oh, and everything just vanishes. Because being in the presence of his power and his sovereignty just answers all our questions, solves all our problems, because we realize he is in complete control. It puts us completely at ease. And this overwhelming sense of peace is a context of acceptance and love, not fear, at least for those of us who know Christ. To be in the presence of the holiness of God apart from Jesus is terrifying. It is terrifying to fall into the hands of a holy God. But these brief glimpses of God now give us hope for those times that we'll see him face to face. Sometimes the struggles that we have in life, we live with so long that they become this white noise that's just always going in our mind that distracts us from seeing the truth in the Bible or hearing the beautiful innocence in children singing. And we forget that the presence of God is going to solve it all. It's going to solve it all when we get to heaven or when Christ comes for us. The presence of God is going to solve it all. As I was sitting there in the car, I didn't realize I needed the presence of God until I had it. And then all of a sudden, it was like, how gracious of the Lord to give me that moment. My car became a sanctuary. It was great. It hadn't happened since then. I'm looking for it again. But we don't live for those moments. They come surprising. Listen to what Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote. He wrote this when he was in prison. Bonhoeffer said this. He was writing to his fiancée. He says, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside, that's not a bad picture of Christmas. If you're in a prison cell, the door has to be opened from the outside. He basically says that's what Christmas did. Jesus came and opened the prison door for us to walk out. Wouldn't it be great if Christ came this year? (laughs) He came once, and this was the hope of Israel. He plans to come again, and this is the hope of Israel as well. Though right now as a nation, they don't know it, but we know it. Maybe he'll come once again. The wonderful promises in the Old Testament, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, these are great promises. But that promise of the forgiveness of sins is a great gift. It's a great gift. And it's something that you can't, it's like being in a prison. You can't open it by yourself. It's something that God does for you. The verse that we started with in Isaiah 9 says that unto us a son is given. It's a gift. It's a gift. Think about all the gifts that are under your tree, or that will be once you go shopping. 
Would you leave a gift that's yours unopened? That'd be crazy. First of all, we like to open our gifts. Second of all, how would the person who gave that gift feel? We open our gifts, don't we? But there's a wonderful gift. In fact, Paul told the Corinthians, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Speaking of Christ, Christ is that gift of eternal life, of forgiveness of sins, of a promise also that, that God himself in, in the Holy Spirit will come and live within you, to never leave you and to always be with you until Christ comes to get us. Christmas is a wonderful reminder of these truths, but it's also a wonderful opportunity to open that gift if you never have. All right, we've got a few minutes, and I was hoping we would. I wonder if there's any questions about what we've talked about or clarification or maybe something we haven't talked about that you have a question on. Anybody? Excellent. That means there's plenty of time to buy books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to look through the pages of Scripture and to see that Christmas was not a coincidence. It was not something that came about because of a census. But you used all these things. You used government. You used history. Everyone from Alexander the Great to the Romans to Caesar to um, even Ruth back in the Old Testament to bring about the promise, the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. And as we look back on that first coming, we also anticipate his second coming, the great hope that begins at the rapture, that Christ comes to take us to be with him in heaven. And this could happen at any moment. How eager we are for that to happen. And until that time, we cling to that hope, knowing that being in your presence, Lord, being in the holiness of God, will solve all our problems. Everything that concerns us, every depressing moment, every discouraging thought, every betrayal, everything that we struggle with, in that moment in your presence will just pass away. Just pass away. How we look forward to that, because that is only the beginning of an eternity with you in which we will enjoy your holy presence. We also ask, Lord, if there are any here today who have yet to place their faith in Christ, who have yet to open that gift, that they've left it unopened, that you would so move in their heart to unwrap the beauty that Christ gives us in forgiveness and in the presence of his Holy Spirit and the promise of his coming again to get us. What a great time to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.